I feel blessed in the name of, by the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Because it's a it, the, this feast, this night specifically, it forced me to read a little bit more about Saint Gregory, whom I feel very embarrassed to be called after his name, and I loved him for his liturgy, but I didn't um, dig deep enough in his life. But thanks to the church here that it was a very good motivation knowing from his reverence of Moses about the feast and the timing of the feast and the timing of the feast in fact matches something very personal and I was very surprised that the feast comes tomorrow or the eve of the feast is today because today carries a personal um, event in my life that, I, uh, that will, will, is very touching St. Gregory uh, is, is, we're gonna get some, some excerpts from his life because when you read his life, you find that he's always had to be moved from one place to another. And he was not an aggressive person, he had a very pleasant demeanor. But he always lived among aggressive people. Let's start from the beginning and of course his life is, is replete of, of evidence of his holiness, but so we'll take some, some snapshots of it. He was born in a city called Arianzas. This is in the area of Cappadocia, a very hilly area, very arid, not m much rain, very poor. And near to the town that he becomes known for to be the bishop of, uh, or the, the pastoral care, taking care of Nazianzas. And in fact, he becomes a bishop neither of Constantinople nor of Nazianzus, but, but another uh, small city called Samis, that his father, after his father becomes a bishop, he ordains him and he, um, he puts him there. Actually, no, his friend, St. Basil, as we'll see, in order for a certain reason. So he says about his father the, the following. His father was an idol worshiper. He repented and then he became, in fact, a priest. And he says, um, unlike my mother, Gregory the Elder had been grafted in from a foreign olive. Using the example of Romans 11, that he's not originally pious like mom, but he's been bought into piety by the behavior of my mother. While she, talking about his mother, came from ancient and pious orthodox roots. So, so similar situation like the house of St. Augustine, St. Monica tolerates very much her husband who was abusive and her mother-in-law who was abusive as well and her son who was completely astray and by her prayers, the three of them returned. This is devout mothers that bring forth saints. His mother's name was Nona, N-O-N-N-A. And his sisters, he has a sister and a brother. Georgina was his sister, and he has a brother called Chrysarius, who studies medicine and excels in it to the point that he becomes the personal doctor of Julian, the infidel emperor. And St. Gregory was very worried about him later on when he knows that he got this position. But he never becomes apostate. The brother stays in the Orthodox faith. Um, his mother had this oath. They had, they had begotten St. Gregory after her husband, Gregory the Elder, became priest. So St. Gregory came after the ordination of the father 
and he, he, he recounts his mother's promise about the son Gregory, what she would do with him. So he says about his mother's promise, ever since the day she had yearned to nurse a man, a man child on her knee, she imitated the cry of the Holy Anna, O King Christ, that I might have a boy for you to keep within your fold. May a son be the flourishing fruit of my birth thanks. Anna is the mother of Samuel that she promised if she gets a child, she will give him to the Lord. So St. Gregory, very eloquent in writing. What, what always he was able to solve by, by his demeanor, he also did it by his writing. His education, he was tutored at home, him and his, um, and his brother and sister by a teacher called Carterius, who later on became a monk. So from the very beginning, he was brought up in a very Christian environment, which is important for our families to behold, because that result would you get somebody like St. Gregory. He liked to write from the very beginning, and he chose him and his brother to go to the Palestinian school in Caesarea. This is uh, there's two Caesareas, Caesarea in Cappadocia, where St. Basil later on becomes a bishop, and there is the Caesarea Philippi, which is uh, the Lord has talked about, and it was mentioned in the book of Acts. So he goes down then to Caesarea Philippi in, in in Palestine, and he starts preach. He starts learning, and he visits the Holy Sepulchre. He visits the tomb of Christ. He becomes more and more devout. Then, knowing that Alexandria is the big place to learn, he went to Alexandria, where Didymus the Blind was at that time the head of or the dean of the Alexandria the School of Alexandria. So, when he went to Alexandria, it was the time of Saint Athanasius and Saint Anthony. He was 18 years old when he went to Egypt. For some reason, he was not drawn too much to Egypt. Maybe it was, um, he was closer to get to Athens. So he decided to go to Athens. But on the way to Athens from Alexandria, he was going to die in a shipwreck. And he started praying. And he says, he taught all of the passengers on the ship to pray. And that's how they got they delivered. And he says, he promises God, if I escape this double danger of shipwreck and spiritual death, he didn't feel, I'm leaving Alexandria, I'm leaving St. Anthony, I'm leaving St. Athanasius, what am I doing? So he says in the ship, if I escape this double danger of shipwreck and spiritual death, I shall live for you, God. And he just delivered me from death and I'm going to give my life to you. If I am abandoned, you shall lose a worshiper. <laughs> so he's telling God that you're going to lose someone if, because I really, really promise to be with you. So if you let me die, you're going to promise somebody who's going to be very committed to you. It's a very anecdotal approach from St. Gregory. At this moment, your disciple is tossed upon the wave. For my sake, wake to me and let the fear be stilled. So please... St. Matthew in chapter 8, as you did with the disciples, tell the ways to be still. And then after this prayer and after teaching the people on the ship to pray, the sea became still and he was able to reach Athens. In Athens, he met his closest friend who was close also to St. John Chrysostom, 
he met St. Basil. They became very close. He spent in Athens 12 years, from the, when he was 18 years old till he was 30 years old. And he says about the bond of friendship between him and St. Basil, we're not covering the whole life, but some passages that he says he was writing everything. He said we made a team because he found some people who are not Christian gathering at St. Basil and he would jump into, imagine St. Basil and St. Gregory are writing things to defend the faith while being still um, college students. So he said, I jump in to save him from the people who are really very ill-mannered and, and, and surrounding him. We made a team. We had all things in common and a single soul. As it were bound together our two distinct bodies. So one soul and two bodies. That's how close friends we were. But above all, it was God and a mutual desire for higher things. We reached such a pitch of confidence that we revealed the depths of our hearts, becoming ever more united in our yearning. There is no such solid bond of union as thinking the same thoughts. Who was also a classmate, an emperor or a prince, Julian? Prince Julian later on becomes the emperor. He becomes an apostate, denounces Christianity either denounces or become an Aryan. It's not sure, but from two reference stories, from Sam Basil's life, it's known that St. Julian became an apostate. And he went to Sam Basil and told him, I'm, I'm going to have a war in Persia. He was very occupied with having wars, a war against Persia. And he said on the way to Sam Basil when he was a bishop, I'm just forwarding a little bit because they were both, the three, actually almost the four of them, St. John Chrysostom, St. Gregory, St. Basil, and then Emperor Julian, who became the emperor later on. He persecuted St. Basil. So St. Basil prayed to who? Marcorius Abusafate, St. Marcorius. And St. Marcorius went and killed Julian in his war against the Persians, which is an amazing thing that we see that our saints that we know about, or are very, very popular in our uh, faith, will find them in, this, in these events that happened, that he really, because he was going to put a lot of um, taxes on St. Basil, taxing uh, Caesarea, and St. Basil basically left it up to God, and he said, we need an outlet from this, and Marcorius told him, I'll go and take care of him, and Marcorius killed Julian by the sword, in his war against the Persians, and he didn't come back. And it's mentioned in the life of St. Gregory also that God delivered the empire from him, that he didn't come back from the war against the Persians. But it doesn't mention the story of St. Marcorius. It's mentioned in the life of St. Basil. He wrote a poem about his personal ambitions as a, as a college student, college student with St. Basil. Marriage never bound me. I took no pleasure in the luxuries of the table. Living in great and brilliant houses did not please me. Christ is my best wealth. Human respect never walk need in me, nor glory that is doomed to perish. I did not seek to hold high place in the royal court. I was not consumed by ambition for distinguished seats of justice nor did I cover great influence in the state or among citizens or actually among the seas that the bishops would like 
would like to have a very prominent chair. The fame that goes with letters was the only thing that absorbed me. He likes to write. He likes to defend the faith. I labored much for a long time in the craft of letters, but I laid this prostrate before the feet of Christ in subjection to the word, the word uppercase, to the logos of the great God. So all this, all this, the only thing I cared about, remind me of Abuna Tadros Ya'ub, the only thing that I cared about is writing. And, but I'm going to lay this at the feet of Christ. I don't care about anything else. And he, he wanted to go back home because his father needed him, probably in the service. And his, his friends started begging him, don't leave, don't leave. We cannot live without you <laughs> on campus. It's amazing the college life that, that, that can come out of this. Um, we can and you relate to what that these people as college, they started to bond together and when he was leaving, they didn't want him to leave. He was encircled by everyone, including strangers, friends, classmates, and teachers. They protested and lamented his departure. They held Gregory tightly, insisting they would not release him. As quoting, as he says, it is not fair that Athens should lose you, to whom we are prepared to concede by vote the primacy of letters. Okay, we acknowledge you are the best writer in us, but please stay. They shouted. But St. Gregory, under the insistence of his father, who probably started to get aging and needed help in the service, pulled him back to go to Arianzas, where he was. This is where he grew up. And um, he started serving also in Nazianzas, which is a neighboring city. Um, in 361, Shortly about after his return, he was ordained in Nazianzus as a priest by his father Gregory, who became a bishop. Julian became an apostate, or at least an Arian. So, and Caesarius, who was the brother of St. Gregory, was became the famous doctor in Constantinople, that even when Caesarius dies and leaves his estate to St. Gregory, St. Gregory didn't, couldn't imagine how rich his brother was. So when he became the doctor in Julian's royal court and Julian specifically asked him to stay to become his physician. St. Gregory is very worried, was very worried. So St. Gregory at UH College at 30, I mean, spending in Athens time till he's 30, he goes back to start serving as a priest and now his brother is worried about him because his brother is this famous doctor in the royal palace, but the emperor is an apostate or an Arian. So he's very, very, very worried about the salvation of his brother. So he writes to him letters, begging him to come back. And the brother refuses, but the brother never leaves Christianity. So he stayed in his capacity as a doctor, but he never actually leaves Christianity. So till the very end, Caesarius, who was the brother of St. Gregory, stays as a Christian. Nazianza started to suffer by the aggressiveness of the Arians. So St. Gregory starts to jump to defend, and Arians were very, very aggressive. And the Nicene Council was in 325. And the Arian heresy was still thriving very strongly for 100 years after the Nicene Council. Very aggressive, killing, murdering. As we'll see, St. Gregory was going to be murdered. And we'll see what happens. So they, they, he, he started to go to Nazianzus, and he started to use the military power to, to grab the church from the Arian from the Arians. 
because the people really wanted a shepherd. Um, in 360, and then he grabbed the church and started serving the people, Nazianzus, and he was a very, very devout, aggressive writer against the Arians. In 363, which is about three years later, St. Basil becomes the bishop, sorry, becomes a priest, and then in 370, St. Basil becomes a bishop. So St. Basil has a lot, of, a lot of issues he's suffering with as well. And there is territorial things with the, with the Arians, there is people he can trust, people who he cannot trust. So he's trying to find his friends that he can put as bishops in the area of Cappadocia, around Caesarea. So who's his best friend? Gregory. So he puts St. Gregory as the bishop of a city called Sassima. So we hear of Constantinople, we hear of Nazianzus, but in fact, St. Gregory was the bishop of a city called Sassima. In order by his brothers, and he, <laughs> he hated what St. Basil did to him. And he, there's writing in his letters that, is this what the friendship is? He was very, very annoyed by what he did to him. But he was a bishop, and he could not refuse. I mean, St. Basil was a bishop, so St. Gregory couldn't refuse. But he hardly stayed at Sassima. He said Sassima <laughs> has nothing. It's like one road. He describes it as like there's nothing in it. It was just territorially put there in order to help him with his orations to answer the Arians. And there was also territorial fight between St. Basil and another bishop called St. Anthemus. And St. Basil wanted to, to gain this oratory power or the power of the word in this area by putting <clears throat> his best friend St. Gregory in Sassima. So St. Gregory never sought position. He was just like as a, as a, as a piece of, of, of a pawn in a chess that gets put and he, he uses his orations in order to defend wherever he's put. So he fought in the Sassima, the heresy of, of Macedonius, and then because of this he gets pulled to Constantinople. Constantinople, but at that time the Arians were like controlling all the churches and they really needed help. What God did help in two ways. St. Gregory accepting to reach Sassima and to go to Constantinople under the pressure of the people begging him because he never wanted to have a, a diocese or, or a position. He was internally, he was extremely, extremely humble. The second event is that Theodosius the Great who was an orthodox, a truly orthodox uh, emperor reigned <clears throat> after the death of Julian. So then they told him, come to Constantinople, we really need help here with the Arians. Then he asks in his writings, was it the Holy Spirit, listen to how he, how he thinks about it, was it the Holy Spirit or just my sins that I might pay the penalty of eminence? Did I really sin a big sin that God is punishing me by putting me in a high position? It's, how would you think this? He's refusing Constantinople. That everybody would rule over this place. You have the emperor being the bishop of Constantinople. But he says, is God really going to destroy my life by giving me this great honor? Or is it really the Holy Spirit calling me for that place? So the elevation and spiritual position with such a devout spirit makes him ask, God, is this really from you or it's my or my emotions are starting to move with fame, but please don't destroy my spirituality by putting me in such a famous place. Very uh, much fighting that's happening. Arians 
trying to grab the church, uh, bishops fighting over fame in the surrounding area, that he writes about this era a very nice statement. He says, in the midst of wolves, I built up a congregation. In the midst of wolves, I built up a congregation. And then he wrote in Constantinople one of his most famous writings called the Five Theological Orations of St. Gregory, by which he gained the term theologian. The first oration was a preliminary discourse against the Ethnomians. The second oration speaks of the existence, the nature, the being, the attributes of God. Insofar as man's infinite finite intellect may comprehend the Trinity. The third and the fourth speak of the Godhead of the Son, similar to St. Athanasius. The fifth oration is on the Holy Spirit. Because of these writings, the Arians want to kill him, to murder him. So they hire somebody. That somebody who is going to kill him, he comes and repents. He tells him, I'm sorry. And he comes and apologizes. And St. Paul, St. Gregory writes about him. St. Gregory will forgive him. We all, this man is your would-be assassin because they caught him and he's, he's coming saying, I'm sorry, I was going to do this. They pushed me to it, and I, but I really don't want to do it. So St. Gregory writes about him, this man is your would-be assassin. It is by the grace of God that you are alive. He came of his own volition to pass judgment on his own guilt. A kindly murderer, a noble accuser who offers his tears as a penalty for blood. I was utterly broken by his words. Then he forgives the murderer and he tells him, May God save you. For me who have been delivered to be kind to my attacker is but a little thing. Your courage has made you mine. See to it that you become a credit both to me and to God. And he said the following, and let's think how much he imitates Christ in this. He says, the master Christ who guarded me, my child, telling the murderer, may he also forgive you your transgression. Only leave your heresy and come to a right confession so that you may labor for Christ with a pure conscience. He advises the murderer, you're great, you repented, come over. And then he gained, he gained huge fame in Constantinople because they knew that he forgave the murderer or the killer who was coming to kill him. I will end with some of his writings, how he's defending the faith. And he wrote this, as part of the Council of Constantinople, whom his old age maybe prevented him from attending, but he sent it to Nectarius. Nectarius also, I think, has, he was the Bishop of Constantinople after, after he, St. Gregory left. And this is a story that he leaves and he goes back and serves in Nazianzus, but that's not the goal here to continue the rest. But the goal here is that when Constantinople was made to answer Macedonius and also Apollinarius, Apollinarius said, <coughs> Macedonius said the Holy Spirit it's just a power, it's not God himself. So he denied the divinity of the Holy Spirit, Macedonius. And Apollinarius said, 
Christ had a human body and a soul, but he did not have a mind. The, di the divinity played the role of the mind. That doesn't make Christ a full human, if that's the case. Then, then we're not saved, because Christ is just a, a, a facade, a human body and a human soul. And that's actually what animals have, a body and a soul. He doesn't have a mind, so he's not fully human. What plays the role of the mind is the mind, of, is the divinity. That's the Apollinarian heresy, in, in, in quick summary. So he wrote to Nectarius, Bishop of Constantinople, and his devout priest, Cledonius. Here is some statements of faith that are very useful for us. We do not sever the man from the Godhead, but we lay down as dogma the unity and identity of person. Unity and identity of person. God is a person in the flesh. God in the flesh is a fully human, fully God. Who of old was not man, but God, the only begotten Son before all ages, unmingled with body or anything corporeal. But in this, that's before the incarnation, unmingled or with anything bodily or, or corporeal. That's something you can, <clears throat> something you can touch. But in the last days, which is the incarnation time, the time of St. Mary, he assumed manhood, manhood also for our salvation. Passable in his flesh, impassable in his Godhead, circumscribed in the body, uncircumscribable in the spirit, at once earthly and heavenly, tangible and intangible, compressible and incomprehensible incompre and incomprehensible, that by one and the same person who was perfect man and also God, the entire humanity fallen through sin might be created anew. The same person who was perfect man and also God, so answers the Apollinarian that he was, not a per that he was just having a soul and a body. Another anathema or another statement of faith, we do not sever the man from the Godhead, but we lay down as dogma the unity and identity of the person. And I just read this. If any worship, if any person worship not the crucified, let him be anathema and be numbered among the dicites. If any assert that he was made perfect by works, or that after his baptism, or after his resurrection from the dead, he was counted worthy of an adoptive sonship, let him be anathema. So he was to become God or perfect after any of the events in his life, and he was not from the beginning perfect God. That's, that's a wrong statement as well, an anathemized statement. If any assert that he has put off his holy flesh, and he was without the flesh, and that his Godhead is stripped of the body, and deny that he is now with his body and will come again with it, let him not see the glory of his coming. For where is his body now, if not with him who assumed it? That is just a small creeds to summarize one, some of his um, faith writings. I want to focus on his style of life and how humble he was. If anyone has put his trust in him as a man without a human mind, that person is really without a mind. <laughs> the person who says this doesn't have a mind. And quite unworthy of salvation. For that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. And if God did not assume a body, how can he heal the body? If God does not have the human mind, how can he heal the human mind? He says this, for what? For that which he has not assumed, that which God has not assumed, he cannot heal. He has not healed it. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. If only half of Adam fell, it's a new, very nice term he uses. 
If only half of Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes and says may be half also. But if the whole of his nature fell, it must be the whole nature, be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten, and so be saved as a whole. Let them not then begrudge us our complete salvation, or clothe the Savior only, only with bones, and bones and nerves and, and humanity without having a mind that's the Apollinarian heresy. For if he has a soul, and yet is without a mind, how is he a man? He would be a mindless animal. May God give us that we imitate the life and the clarity of St. Gregory. And may God bless his church here, which is great to have that name. And give us the, the humility that he has in, in forgiving his murderer, <clears throat> in denying possessions, in even his talent. He puts it, I'll put it at the feet of Christ. It's the only thing I like, which is writing. And may God enlighten us the same way he enlightened St. Gregory too. Christ is the glory with his good Father and Holy Spirit. One God, I mean, absorb my Father and pray for me.